Hello, Mage fans. Welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that words ascension so you don't have to. My name is Adam Simpson. I'm joined today by Terry Robinson, who is fresh back from Gen Con. Is that not right, Terry? Woo! I am. It, I, it has been such a short period of time since I got back from Gen Con that I have already booked my place for Gen Con 2020. This is a case where a few months out from Gen Con, I'm like, ah, Gen Con's in four months. I should pick a place. And there was like a single location I could stay. It was like $900 a night and it was 30 miles away. So this year I decided to be on the ball and I have just kind of swung for the fences and I more or less rented a mansion. So I have 11 months to come up with literally eight to 16 additional people that want to join me at Gen Con. And right now I've sent out a few invites. So I may inadvertently be running an entire podcast studio out of the place I'm staying for Gen Con 2020, but it was amazing. That that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> that uh, sounds like you got to get a few people together. I'm not... Uh, that made the podcast reality show that we've been talking about may finally happen. <laughs> yeah, it may Dean finally happen. Fans, well, yeah, I'll do a one house LARP and we'll see how that goes. That does sound like fun. I was going to take a moment and indulge in one of my favorite hobbies, and that is making Terry uh, uncomfortable. I just wanted to mention the fact that uh, today I'm recording on a new higher quality microphone that uh, Terry generously sent in, and that was uh, partially covered by um, income from uh, a magical fiasco, the supplement that Terry wrote and loaded up onto uh, Storyteller's Vault. So uh, those of you who paid to download Magical Fiasco, I'd just like to let you know that I appreciate what you're doing. You're helping us to uh, cover necessary expenses for the podcast, not only uh, uh, help to cover a, a microphone for me, but also some interview microphones that uh, Terry used at Gen Con and uh, other things in the future. And of course, you can also help the podcast by contributing to our PayPal link on our website, uh, magethepodcast.com. So if you'd like to help us do what we're doing, there are several options open to you. Yep. Thank you, everyone who bought a copy. Right now, it's at about 250 copies sold, um, of which about a quarter of people have given some actual thing. It's it's pay what you want. So the vast preponderance of people put zero in, which is entirely fine. My goal is to just get the supplement out into the world, and I appreciate that. If you got the supplement and didn't pay for it, it would be super kind of you if you did leave a review, preferably a nice one, but I will take all criticism. Uh, there was a person that left a comment on the page who's like, you need to have a preview. I don't know what I'm getting into. And my reply was, it's free. What does it matter? And that person got it anyway, but gave a pretty sizable pay what you want contribution. So thank you person to who both pointed out that there was no preview and then still decided to drop some, some change in the coffers. We appreciate that. And as we get more money, we can do more and more adventurous things. We have some pretty interesting plans going into the future and uh, we look forward to sharing those with our audience as they develop. Okay, well today we are continuing with the Tomes of Magic uh, series. We are looking at Halls of the Arcanum. And uh, this is a book that, uh, interestingly, could be considered a mage book and could also not be considered a mage book. It is uh, part of the Year of the Hunter series, which was running about uh, 95, maybe a bit into 1996. This book was published in 1995, and of course there is no number on the spine. Uh, the Year of the Hunter was a sort of a crossover um, theme that White Wolf was running uh, back in the day. Uh, for each of the books, uh, they would 
put out a supplement, for example, uh, Vampire the Masquerade got uh, The Inquisition about vampire hunters. Uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse got Project Twilight, which covered uh, intelligence communities and secret agents and similar things. Mage the Ascension got Halls of the Arcanum. Now, the Arcanum is a group of, uh, I guess you could say, uh, mortals, most of whom are regular human beings without any special supernatural powers or influence. And uh, they were mentioned in earlier uh, books for uh, Vampire the Masquerade or uh, World of Darkness. And so this isn't the first time that we're getting to hear about the Arcanum, but it is the first time that they get uh, their own book and uh, a lot more detail than they had in the past. You might say that uh, Arcanum doesn't have any particular connection to mages. And of course, as you're the hunter, the Arcanum don't really hunt anyone. But uh, the book does have a trade dress that uh, borrows much from the Mage First Edition. Instead of the purple, uh, you know, folded, uh, I don't know, curtain or, or sheet uh, that is a background for Mage books, it's they tone it to brown, and they took the page borders from First Edition Mage and they sort of spiced it up a bit. But uh, basically, they uh, gave a visual representation to the uh, purchaser that this is connected to Mage. And of course, the Mage logo is on the back of the book. And what I appreciate is the author, uh, James Estes, who has also written for uh, Mage, made a point to really try and connect this with Mage instead of just the, the token connection as part of. Uh, Year of the Hunter. And so I, I appreciated that that nod towards Mage by the author. Some of the other Year of the Hunter books uh, did not uh, take the trouble to do that. The Quick and the Dead. So we got Year of the Hunter was 95. That gave us, what, Vampire the Inquisition, Werewolf Project, Twilight, Mage, Halls the Arcanum, Wraith the Oblivion, Quick and the Dead, and Changeling the Dreaming, The Autumn People. I would have lost a bet. I thought the Vampire the Masquerade supplement about it was The Hunter's Hunted, but that came out in 92. And likewise, Demon Hunter X was a Year of the Lotus title, so blew my mind open. I also like the fact that Year of the <laughs> predates the invention of Hunter the Reckoning by like six years. They're like, Year of the Hunter, until Hunter comes out. And then that will also be a Year of the Different Hunters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Later on from the classic uh, World of Darkness, uh, there were new major titles launched like uh, Demon and Hunter and, and perhaps one or two others. But uh, yeah, it, around the time of 1995, this was, um, again, written by James Essies. He did the uh, tradition book Celestial Chorus and World of Darkness Sorcerer, the, the first edition of that, and uh, a few other books. So he's quite familiar with the mage line and uh, understands his topics quite well. I like the part where his quotes made sense and the writing was clear and sharp and the book made sense internally. I, I, I like the part where they're like, and, he, and, and James was maybe like, what should I write? And they just go, whatever wasn't done in Ascension's right hand. And he's like, okay. I will start with that and do the opposite. And we got a pretty great book out of it, in my opinion. Yeah, my opinion is the same. I, I really did like it. I thought the writing was good. I think I thought the uh, the ideas were, were creative and interesting. And uh, it, it connects well to Mage, but it does it in like a, a subtle, soft kind of a way. It's not hitting you over the head with uh, constant Mage references and uh, Mage NPCs uh, showing up uh, again and again. But uh, it was very well done. I, I enjoy the book. I've always liked the group, the Arcanum. They are basically a group of scholars who are hunting uh, for mysteries. Um, uh, I guess we can get into the details later, but um, they were covered very well in this book. And I would give it a thumbs up, uh, not only as an addition to your Mage Chronicles, but also if you're running anything else in classic World of Darkness, I think really fun and interesting group. But before we get into the meat and the potatoes of the book, uh, Terry, I'd like to hear about the sections in this book. 
I will tell you about the individual sections of this book. It starts off with an opening piece of fiction, and the best part of it is it makes sense. It's it sets the tone for the rest of the book, and it is a story that is followed through. It is a character researching something, telling you what kind of dork they are, how they became a dork, and how they joined this international society of dorks. And as a dork, I super appreciated that, where it's like, you think this is going to be lame? Well, guess what? It's not. Put on your big boy pants. It's time to learn about the Arcanum. So that that's the opening fiction, and I think you and I are on the same page for that, where you're like, oh man, this does a good job of priming me for it, as opposed to starting out with a, uh, a shotgun blast through a marauder in a biker bar hitting a cyborg. I thought yeah, that was an improvement yeah. over some previous entries. Yeah, so after the opening fiction, we get the proper introduction, which leads off with uh, a statement of mood. And the, the final set statement regarding the mood, and this is something I super like about this book, is it maintains a sense of curiosity without being overcome with dread, which is interesting because this is the mortal book. These are the people least prepared for what they will encounter, you would figure, and they are the ones that seem to encounter the unknown with the least level of trepidation, with one or two exceptions. And the final line of that opening introduction is enter, observe, and wonder. And I super appreciated that. It says right off the bat, this is inspired by the Tales of Lovecraft, by August Derleth, by Edgar Allan Poe, by Campbell. I almost said Bruce Campbell there, and I, <laughs> <laughs> which I guess in one sense could also be appropriate. And I very much <laughs> like how upbeat and hey, uh, this could be dangerous, but but let's let's kind of see what's happening. And then it leads into chapter one, the the way of the pilgrim, which is a outline of how one joins the Arcanum, and it is this back and forth between a budding artifact and information hunter and someone who is more experienced in the ways of the Arcanum. And there is a back and forth between the two over email where one says, I'm going to introduce you to this mystical society, the Arcanum. And the other guy goes, that sounds really weird. And the other guy goes, it kind of is, but it's a lot of fun. And I'm going to use a lot of capitalized words. And then the other guy's like, Okay, you have pretty nice houses. Let's continue working with each other. And I super liked how like the one eyebrow was raised in the way that a lot of mages kind of take themselves super seriously. Like they see someone do something ridiculous, like they come up with a rocket powered by like snail farts or something like that. And no one no one breaks character to say, seriously, you have a rocket powered by snail farts. But this guy does. He's like, what the dink are you talking about? And I super appreciated that as a thought. <laughs> and then it just goes through uh, this character's initial familiarity. It, it's a quick overview of what the Arcanum is with the different... Uh, levels of organization are, and that kind of rounds out chapter one. Since chapter one does talk about uh, the Arcanum and, and how it's formed and, and uh, of what it consists, uh, it's probably a good point to uh, bring in a, a few uh, pieces of information. This book uh, has an interesting division in that uh, there are some parts where it goes into um, secret truths that few people know, but towards the beginning of the book, um, it talks about things that generally most every member of the Arcanum would know. And so that covers things such as uh, uh, headquarters is called Foundation House, which of course where Arcanum was founded. And uh, members will uh, tell uh, people who are not members that, uh, oh, our headquarters is just north of London, but actually it's roughly a hundred miles north of London in Cambridgeshire. And Foundation House has a massive and very valuable and well-indexed library that has its own name. It's so cool. It is called the Axis Mundi. The Foundation House is not the only uh, head, uh, location for the Arcanum. They have uh, what they call 
chapter houses that exist in important cities on uh, every inhabited uh, continent of the world. And every chapter house has a leader um, that is called a chancellor. Yeah, that rounds out the uh, that. And then on to chapter two, we have The Darkling Road, The World Within and Without, which is just kind of a history of the founding of the Arcanum. We get information about what the world of occult research was like before the formal founding of the Arcanum. And we get the introduction of Benjamin Holmescroft. And when Adam said Cambridgeshire earlier, I'm like, yeah, that's how an American would say it. But a British person would probably say or something because they tend to be fond of dropping syllables from place names. Uh, I had a British friend of mine that I would chronically annoy by calling Worcestershire sauce or what they would call Worcester sauce, Worcestershire sauce. And I tried to teach every kid at the summer camp I went to to pronounce it Worcestershire sauce. And that was uh, that was one of my summer projects because you get very bored at a summer camp where you have no access to the internet or outside society. And um, it talks about the hermetic order of the rising day and the hermetic order of the rose and dawn. These hermetic orders, which was in a lot of cases seemingly rich people making up things they thought the Rosicrucians did, aka the Knights of the Rosy Cross, which they probably didn't do. And it would be the equivalent of something like the Shriners or any number of the fraternal societies that became popular in the United States in the, uh, in the interwar and afterwar period where people would just kind of make up something about what a old group of people had done and just kind of turn that into a group of some sort as a form of social club. And a lot of people pointed things back to the Rosicrucians, which was a group that was founded in the 1400s by Christian Rosicruits. There is infinity information about this topic online, and I will spare you. But there is a special place in the desert that they were trying to find, Damkar, which was uh, this, this mystical town. And uh, a lot of people were, were trying to find it or recreate it. Uh, the, the chapter kind of goes through the process of tying everything back. Um, they have the advent of the first rituals that are that are used within the Arcanum as an attempt to tie people together. And then they have the first encounter proper with the supernatural. So up until the Boston fire in 1910, there is this idea that these are just kind of academic dilettantes that are researching their own areas. And then someone comes in contact with something and suddenly an entire building bursts into flames. And this is referred to as the Boston Fire. A lot of books are destroyed. And then the Arcanum as a whole says to itself, stuff has just gotten serious. And they step up security. And the Boston Fire is kind of used as a reminder of the forces that the Arcanum is up against. It's the first time they really get at least semi-definitive -de -de proof that there is something going bump in the night that they may have to deal with. And then rounding out the chapter, we get information on the Thule Gesellschaft, which was Hitler's group that tried to collect German nationalist mystic information and artifacts and so on, and how they replied to that, what the, uh, the Cold War had done to them. And then we get what I think is probably one of my favorite points in the book. Uh, it's, it's part two, The World of Shadows, and it is just a collection of all the things that can go bump in the night. So up until this point, when we talk about things in mages, it's like, oh, we got vampires and werewolves and other things. This goes through it in much more specific terms where it says, let's talk about places of mystery, places that people claim to exist that we may not have evidence for, uh, alien visitation. We have magical items. Magic is a general concept. What about miracles and spirits and demons and psychic effects and the undead and fairies and were creatures and the immortals and so on. And it just kind of goes through a list and gives you a whole bunch of things that you can look into to throw into your game. 
as a way of doing it without even necessarily needing to add another splat. And I super like that about this section. Did you have any thoughts about the, the history or the areas of investigation for the Arcanum? And I do like the juxtaposition of what the people are investigating. It's kind of reminds me of the Sons of Ether, where you have the upright people punching Nazis and so on and talking about what's right, despite what they're, what they're coming in contact with. And in this section, it's like, I found myself being flayed by a follower of an unseen God when a vampire feared and supped upon my neck. It was most untoward. And just the, the juxtaposition of what's actually happening with the language that is used. Like you can hear everyone's monocle falling out as they're talking about it. <laughs> yes. And I super like that as an idea. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, the, with one of the undead. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, that was interesting. The occupational hazards of being an arcanist apparently uh, <laughs> include uh, picking up pretty girls and going to wild parties. But hey, it's in the name of research. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Our cocaine-scented study group is continuing its nine, ninth day of raving. Full science. Um, <laughs> so the third chapter is the politics and inner workings of the organization. And it talks about the different groups within the organization. You have the seekers, which emphasize personal enlightenment. They are on their quest for the grail or the philosopher's stone, and they tend to be somewhat single-minded with what they're trying to find. You have the Templars whose basic mission is they do think the world is divided between good and evil. And part of the Arcanum's job should be to dispel the evil parts about it, where most people are more, no, let's observe. Uh, and then finally, you have the progressivists who believe that the uh, Arcanum right now is kind of full of crap. It's this antiquated neo-Victorian pseudo-occult secret society boys club who spends time like puffing cigars in, in, in wing chairs and reading Latin. And they think the organization needs to update itself. And there are a fair number of things that support that. The book tries to keep a at least uh, sex balance as it goes through. Like it even includes little sides like the title Elder Brother is used commonly throughout, but we would like to note that Elder Sister is also used. And it seemed a little like bolted on, but eh, they're trying. And again, 1995. I don't know what we're necessarily going to expect. This is also the chapter where we get the first reference to beware the white monks. And a character, Jeffrey, eyes popping out saying, there are no white monks. They are a myth, a myth, a rumor concocted by those who see occult conspiracies everywhere and secret masters behind everything. Forget everything you receive, you, you have seen, and that is strictly propaganda. I don't know about you, but if someone's like, there are no white monks, that super means there are white monks for days. Like, Yeah, that, that particular uh section of the book may have been a little too on the nose. <laughs> I think that was, it could have been handled a, a little bit better, but yeah, right. Obviously when, when someone says, Hey, what about this? And then the speaker or the, you know, the head in the room, you know, his eyes pop out and he says, there, that doesn't exist. Be quiet. That of course, everybody's going to be a little suspicious. I mean, it's just human nature. So. That's kind of like whenever I hear a congressperson yell about the importance of preserving family values and staying true spouse that's basically them admitting to the fact that they're having an affair at this point so when <laughs> whenever someone does that like blah, 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 keep, keep I'm like ah oh, they're they're cheating on someone <laughs> i don't know who yet we don't have a very good track record of people who say that actually following through at least in in the united states politics the second half of that chapter is the atlas of the arcane and it goes through the different operations that the arcanum uses around the world now, the Arcanum uses a pretty antiquated way of dividing up the world. They center everything on the Holy Land, which they kind of vaguely 
define as something Middle East, something Northern North Africa, and then they divide the world into the Orient and the Occident or the Occident, and just being East and West, which is fine, but it's a little it's a little cringy now, and it's one of those cute things where you're like, oh, this helps if you want to use the Arcanum as a throwback theme to these are the perils of not changing with the time. The naming convention is a super good example of that, of being like, oh, okay, this is how we can inadvertently be offensive to everyone. And then it goes through the different houses and the different operations uh, by continent. The section on Australia is a little bit thin, uh, but otherwise most of them are relatively fleshed out. It gives you a lot of italicized words that you may not be familiar with of occult practices around the world. Uh, see our episode on occultism for more information regarding uh, some of these topics. And it serves as a super good springboard at least to say, oh, this word or sentence sounds interesting. I'm going to go do some more investigation because I want to add that. We get a good section on the foundation house, the key uh, building north of London in Chesterfield, and finally a brief note on the initiation of joining the group. And I liked the ending of the section where the author goes, "We are the Arcanum. We hunt the night. We seek the lost knowledge, the hidden things, the secret ways." So, Adam, what did you think of Chapter Three? No, I, I think you covered it well. Uh, yeah, I think um, it was uh, a, a good job overall. I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next section. Nice. Um, and then in chapter four, we get character creation. This is part of book two, the journeyman's guide, and it leads us through how to create an arcanist. And what I liked about this was it, we get a whole bunch of new abilities. We get like lucid dreaming and lore mythology and so on, which are all entirely fine. We get a brief subsystem on how to read old manuscripts, which I like because there is always that scene in a movie that involves like encountering a lost Egyptian ruin and you happen to have the guy that can read like Koine Greek as well as Demotic as well as what have you. It, it super goes through like, that's completely unbelievable. So we have a slightly modified way of doing this as a thing. And, and I kind of appreciate Yeah, that. I got to agree with that. There are countless movies, TV shows, et cetera, where, guy, where they pull someone up and says, hey, do you know old Greek? Oh, yeah, I know old Greek. I'll just read it like right now. It says this. Oh, cool. Okay, let's go to the next scene. And yeah, as the audience, you're, you're like, no, I, I don't think it works this way. I, I really don't. And, and this book addresses that. It's like, you know what? In your role playing sessions, you don't have to do that. You can do this instead. Despite the fact that there is a clear difference between high, Curse of Hieroglyphs, Hieratic, Demotic, and Coptic. Um, and later, like proper Arabic writing. Yeah, there's always that guy that happens to to seemingly know everything or that person that seemingly knows everything. And it gives you a system for that. And as someone who wants rules for their rules, I was super appreciative of that. Yeah, well, one, one of the things I like about role-playing games, you can take a lot of things uh, from the movies that are done to keep the pace quick so that you don't bore audiences and they gloss over all these things. But when you're, you're writing your own story or running your own role-playing game, it's like, no, we can slow down and do this right. This book helps you slow down and do it right. Now, I like that. I like that the author is keeping that in mind. I also like that in the section on merits and flaws, we get merits and flaws that don't need to be at all restricted to members of the Arcanum. Some of these are just good. Like we get the isolated upbringing flaw, which I don't know about you, seems like it would super apply to a bunch of mages, especially if they grew up in some sort of magical tradition. And it just gives a system for having difficulty dealing with people outside of your group who are maybe not familiar with it. We get a general version of supernatural companion. We get psychic awareness and we get a bunch of other abilities that I think are just reasonable to have as part of your, your toolbox. 
for example, the Project Twilight that was done for Werewolf the Apocalypse during Year of the Hunter. I mean, it, it was a nice book and it was interesting, particularly connect to, to were creatures as I recall, but, mm -hmm. uh, the Arcanum, it's like, Hey, not only are we putting out some merits and flaws that can be great for Arcanum characters, but you could use this for mage too. And they would work and they would make sense. It's like, yeah, that's really cool. And then in the next chapter, we get a whole bunch of sample characters, which are reasonably well done. We get a whole bunch of full character sketches. We get their background, the things that they're interested in, whatever it, it is standard character stuff. Rounding out that chapter, we also get a bunch of pre-made characters dots and such are not necessarily given but we get instead people's curriculum vitae we get a list of publications and accomplishments that they have which i think is almost more useful especially in the context of the arcanum of saying i want to introduce this character who cares how many dots they have but their background gives you an idea of what are the supernaturals that they've encountered what are their own particular things that they enjoy researching where do they want the organization to go i was very pleased with how the character section was done it was uh, thoughtfully done uh, with uh, attention given to uh, not only what can the person do in a, in a fight, but if one breaks out, but like, you know, in an actual plot scene, what can they contribute? It's like, oh, well, they know this and they know that. Now I know what they can contribute. Yep. And then finally rounding out the book, we get uh, the, the third book, the Mystagogues guidebook, uh, starting with chapter six, Behind the Veil. This is a section that is marked as storytellers only, and it brings us three things. One, it asks a whole bunch of fundamental questions about who the Arcanum consists of and why it was started. What's up with this Benjamin Holmescross fellow? Uh, where did the the hall that they come out, Vanivere Hall, where was that provided? What is the Axis Mundi and what is its nature? Who are the white monks? Who are the red monks, if indeed they even exist? We get more statted out versions of some other characters, if you just do need things to go down to dots. And it kind of rounds out all the information that a storyteller is going to need to, to introduce characters if a storyteller wants to. And I very much like the dichotomy of this is what you can tell the players, or this is what the players can read. This is what they would have on background if they are an arcanist. And this is what you should probably keep pretty close to your chest. I thought that was well done. And even though it did not give definitive answers, it gave a set of what I'll call definitive answers, where it said it could be any one of these four things. Here's why it could be, and here's why it can't be. And I like that because I hate when the storyteller section has something like shrouded in rumor and mystery. No, no, no. Just, just tell me as a storyteller what's going on. And even if you don't know, make up something that is good and internally consistent that I can come to my table and treat that as being the definitive answer rather than being like, let your imagination fill it in. Yeah, sometimes my imagination is going to fill it in. Other times people are going to be here in 15 minutes and I need something I can run with. And I very much appreciated the, I'm going to hand you a option, but here are some others as well. Yeah, that, that was a, a trick that uh, as a gamer, I picked up from uh, reading through the entries in Anders Mage whenever he was talking about a particular topic. Uh, instead of saying, here's the truth behind it, or saying, nobody knows what the truth behind this is, he would say, it could be A, it could be B, it could be C. And he gives you enough you know, information to say, oh, why that might work or why that might not work. And that technique was also used here in the Arcanum. And uh, I, I think that's thoughtful writing. And I don't know about you, but there are some times when what is really going on is super effing lame. <laughs> like that's the best you could come up with. That's the secret behind the seeming like Oracle of Delphi or what have you. So I, I like the fact that they give you a bunch of options and you can pick the one that resonates with you. Like, no, 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 yeah. this one, this one reads true to me. And that can be your canon. And I thought that was, yeah, that was well handled. And then rounding out, we get our appendices, which include uh, in part one, we get 
alchemy. And it goes into remarkably deep territory regarding, at least for a supplement, uh, the etymology of it, how the practice has changed over time, how the information has been passed down, elements of the alchemical laboratory, how to use it in games, some sample alchemical effects. And finally, Appendix 2, we get artifacts, example, relics or mystical items that can be used, as well as a map of a possible Arcanum house, a, a possible chapter house. And it was at that age where like computer graphics had just improved a little bit. And you're like, oh man, someone used 3D interior design rendering to produce that. I found that quaint. I, I love building maps. They're super useful because even if you don't use them for the thing as they're intended, it's good to have like a big old house you can just plop into the middle of a story whenever that proves to be useful. I have feelings about the relics. I have feelings about the alchemy, but I'm glad it's there. I guess, I guess my criticisms would kind of go in, in some of the more overall stuff, but did you have any uh, specific thoughts about those sections? You mentioned the uh, 3d renders of the house, which could be done a lot better now, but uh, I'm, I'm looking at that section in my own book now. And that was another thing I appreciated about the book. When I think of Arcanum adventures, I picture in my mind, a lot of scenes where some mystery unfolds and the characters are in an Arcanum chapter house as they learn this and learn that. And then there's possibilities of some assassin going after an NPC or a player character. Then they have to chase them down the hall. And of course, then the storyteller says, oh, wait, how might this building be laid out? Well, in the yeah. very back of Halls of the Arcanum, we have small Arcanum chapter house. We have large Arcanum chapter house. And we have known areas of the Arcanum foundation house in England. And so we have three different locations. We get floor plans, which honestly are, are probably the most immediately useful to a storyteller. But uh, we also get for the small Arcanum chapter house, we get some 3D renders of what it might look like uh, from the outside. And it's just so useful. It's like if I'm running an Arcanum uh, chronicle or, or you know, a section of my chronicle where the characters interact heavily with um, Arcanists, then yeah, I, I might really... Uh, whip this book off my shelf, uh, go to the back and grab one of those floor plans and say, okay, you're in this room. And if you go down the hall, you're going to see these doors in, in this kind of room. And it's like, it's just so useful and so practical. I, I, and and to have three different locations yes. right there the on only a couple of pages. That's great. And it's the kind of stuff that as a storyteller, I'm constantly spending 99 cents to $2 and 99 cents getting off the storyteller where it's just like, oh, I need a, a floor plan for a police precinct. I need a floor plan for a, a neo-Romanesque church. I love stuff like that. And uh, creators for the Storyteller Vault, thank you so much for creating so many options where I can pay you under $3 and immediately get what I need for my campaign. I also like the fact that a lot of the newer ones will automatically print out to scale in such a way that even if you needed a very large floor plan, it will only use like an eight by eight section of a piece of paper so that you can trim the area around it and stick them all together and come up with a very large floor plan quickly. So yeah, I love this stuff too. Well, uh, looking at the book as a whole, um, a few things I wanted to mention. Um, of course, the book is, is written to be a resource for people who want to run um, mortal tier uh, arcanist uh, characters. And when I say mortal tier, that's that's my way of referring to the fact that uh, the big five World of Darkness games have um, a certain power level, but the mortal tier is intended to be uh, more regular human sorts of characters that are less powerful, less knowledgeable of what's really going on in the greater world. And Arcanum is supposed to, to fit into that level. Uh, and this book, of course, gives us all the resources for character generation, for uh, noumena, which is uh, supernatural powers that are less powerful 
uh, not as powerful as, say, uh, vampire disciplines or werewolf gifts, but uh, something that mortals can use and can be helpful to them, but not overpowering. But uh, also, this book is a great resource for anyone running a mage chronicle who wants to use the Arcanum as you know a group of NPCs that that feature in one or more stories in the Chronicle. And, and this book is just terribly useful for that. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, you might even read the book and just decide to add them. I think the book is is so well done. The general stereotype in the world of darkness about the Arcanum is, oh, they're a bunch of stuffy old scholars. They just want to do research and learn stuff and publish papers. And I, I like how the book addresses the idea that they are not just scholars who want to publish papers and, you know, be college professors and, and, and like that. They, they actually are part of an older uh, occult tradition where they want to not only uncover the mysteries, but uh, they want to use those mysteries to find enlightenment or some kind of spiritual purification or immortality or, or something like that. It, it's not it's, just about book learning. It's almost a kind of meta-occultism. They are using occultism as the mechanism of ascent. Like in a lot of cases, it it seems like they don't care about the particular thing. Like some person could be obsessed with the Holy Grail. Another person could be obsessed with finding uh, Shambhala or Damkar or something like that. But in their own weird way, they are all pursuing their own little version of ascension by just finding the hidden things, the mysteries. I, I super like the fact that this was a very, let's go get our hands dirty. Let's go explore the world. It was, it was a very different world of darkness to me than what's presented in a lot of the other books. Like the only way you can have a chapter house and so on is if you have a fair amount of wealth backing it. So it doesn't seem like you're going to have that gritty, dingy nineties punk rock version of the world of darkness. But I found the quote I was trying to find earlier that I super loved. And it was one of the characters says the shadows beckon, let us enter and learn. And that degree of, I know what I'm up against, but I'm going to do it anyway because learning is important to me. I really think that's a key theme for maids that's important, like the investigation, finding out what goes bump in the night and learning about it as opposed to necessarily just destroying it or running from it. I very much like as a theme in mage. Yeah. And, and it is very appropriate for connecting this book with the uh, mage, the Ascension game, because uh, at this point, it's the about the tail end of first edition. And uh, around this time, um, uh, Satiros Bracado, uh, who was the line developer for um, late uh, first edition, all of second edition, had made a conscious decision, which he has uh, spoken of in interviews and I think even published in some of the later mage books. And he said that uh, during the, especially the early 90s, the World of Darkness games, especially Vampire and Werewolf, they had a, a real uh, heavy focus on this dark mood and, and a certain you know, bleak outlook on the world. And uh, Bracado decided, hey, look, in, in Mage, I want to open it up more. Uh, I want to do things different. I want to have more hope, more of a positive vibe. Uh, I think that can not only you know satisfy my own desires, but I think it can uh, really be a nice way to look at the world of darkness. And Halls of the Arcanum uh, connects with that. It, it reinforces that. And so I, I think it just makes it uh, so much nicer to, to pull it in and make it a part of your larger uh, Mage Chronicle. And I think it's partially reflective of White Wolf as the company and the authors kind of getting more like it is very easy to share dread and darkness and despair in a very literal way wherever poor and everything one's burned down and there are thugs on every street corner. But I think as you get 
older, what makes you experience dread is fundamentally different. And I feel like the authors went through that transition of realizing that for different people, different things are going to cause terror and fear. And we need ideas and tools and role-playing techniques that will allow us to poke at each one of those. It is not just the down and gritty immediate threat, but other things that one can be concerned about and that role-playing can help you deal with those anxieties. But also to partially change gears for a moment, um, another part I liked was it did play to some of the uh, traditional themes uh, put down in earlier World of Darkness books, and that is World of Darkness is full of uh, conspiracies and different uh, levels of conspiracies that scale up as you go. And, and I think this book connected with that older theme using the white and red monks. Uh, it, it says that the white monks are not actual like monks in the Catholic Church or something, but but they are the secret organization that is manipulating and has a heavy influence on the Arcanum. And whether that's good or bad, it, it doesn't really go into specific detail. But also there's this group which may or may not exist, called the Red Monks. And the Red Monks don't oppose the original mission of the Arcanum. They're not trying to destroy the Arcanum or stop them at every turn, but they're trying to oppose the White Monks and trying to break the influence that the White Monks has over the Arcanum. And so that like higher-level conspiracy, it, it really spoke to me. It, it, it makes the Arcanum more interesting and, and, and more a group that I want to use in my larger World of Darkness Chronicles. And it's one of those cases like conspiracies in the Arcanum to me are like mind games in the end of like, what is it among the people who are best at doing this? Mm -hmm. There, You have the idea that, oh, there's a conspiracy and the conspiracy might be uncovered. But what does a conspiracy look like when you are trying to have a conspiracy amongst people who almost as a job try and unravel conspiracies? And does that make it harder or easier? And I, I love that consideration. Yeah, it, it just makes it really But One of the biggest mysteries is right under their nose. It's like, man, that can be a satisfying theme to run with as a story. Uh-huh. I, I too liked it. I, I liked how big it made the world feel. It's just kind of a big list of not quite plot threads, but plot studs. Just here are things that you may not have thought of investigating. Here are a bunch of key terms from world cultures that if any of them resonate with you, you can go off and investigate and jam into your chronicle. I think it did a super good job of making the world seem like a bigger, more alive place and that mages only occupy a small corner of it. I think it's possible to create a mage chronicle where like, oh, mages are really the powerhouse behind everything. But this book, again, with a conspiracy angle and the fact that their mortals reminds you that mages can do what they want, but at the end of the day, there are six to seven billion mortals doing their own thing, and that can add up to a lot too. And I like that. I thought the book served as a really good reminder of, of how big the world of darkness could be. And on a personal note, as I was reading this book, I just had this personal feeling of, oh man, I would just love to be at these meetings when when the Etherites get together and tell their stories and and uh, you know chew the fat. And I got that same feeling with um, with Halls of the Arcanum. I was reading through it and I was thinking, man, give me one of those leather wing chairs at Foundation House. Give me a, a cup of uh, Earl Grey tea, and, and I just want to hang out with these guys. I want to hear what they're talking about when they're chewing the fat, because you know. Just, just leave me there for a couple of days and I'll be a happy guy. Yeah, that is something where if we ever got a in-world supplement, I would love to hear the, the lecture notes or the transmissions from the uh, the 29th meeting of the Society of Ether or something like that. I wish that were a, a fictional in-game artifact that we would have access to. Another thing I was thinking about as reading through uh, canon was uh, I couldn't help but wonder if this was World of Darkness's answer to Call of Cthulhu. 
Uh, Call of Cthulhu, of course, is a tabletop role-playing game that has been quite popular for a number of years. It's in its seventh edition now and still as popular as it was years ago. And, of course, that's a role-playing game that centers around the uh, fantasy-slash-horror fiction written by H.P. Lovecraft, uh, August Derleth, and other authors who wrote stories in that general setting. And that's uh, where characters uh, hunt for mysteries, and uh, they usually discover that the mysteries are more than they can handle, and and that can often lead to a, a chilling end to a story. But very popular game. I also found out it's very popular in Japan, as it turns out. There's a lot of tabletop role players in Japan that are uh, playing Call of Cthulhu in, in you know, Japanese translated uh, rule books and just loving it. So, But uh, here we have Halls of the Arcanum is, is a little bit like Call of Cthulhu. You've got characters who are hunting out the mysteries and sometimes they find out it's a little more than they can handle. Yeah, speaking of a little more than they can handle, one of the, the things I did have, what do we do with the accumulation of knowledge and artifacts that the group is going to have? This goes in the, I don't need a definitive answer from the book, but I do think a storyteller who's going to introduce it needs to have a definitive answer that if you have this group that has been collecting artifacts for let's just round off and say 150 years do they have a mystical armory somewhere is this something like the technocracy where they can have requisitions do things happen to go missing like once you gain access to the like a four dot relic like the silver chalice which is a item that under certain conditions can allow you to heal all wounds what does the Arcanum actually do with that? Do they break it apart and try and figure out how it works? Do they keep it under wraps? Do they move it around to wherever it's going to be dangerous? I feel like each answer to that question kind of creates a fundamentally different Arcanum. And I don't know which one is right. Like what do mortals do when they have access to that kind of power? And the other thing that seemed odd to me was they make mention that there are members that have access to noumena and psychic phenomenon, but they do not offer active training. And I'm like, man, you're an academic research organization. If any of your people showed any psychic prowess that were repeatable and provable, it seems to me like you'd be all up on that. And I don't, I didn't have a very good answer to that in the same way that the game doesn't necessarily do well with techno magic. Like how do we deal with the problem of these things are supposed to progress over time? What does that actually look like? And does it actually happen? I, I don't have a good answer to that. I think it's nice that there's there's room to maneuver or, or elbow room for each storyteller to give their own answers to the question of uh, what do you do with the accumulation of knowledge? I mean, one storyteller might say, hey, after 150 years, the Arcanum has gathered a whole lot of information and they're ready to move into the next phase of their organization. And now they're going to use all this accurate, well-documented, accumulated knowledge to do all kinds of amazing things. Or you might have a storyteller who says, well, look, um, I, I want to keep this in the world of darkness where there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of mysteries. And so I'm going to say, not unreasonably, that uh, you know, 100 years ago, there might've been some arcanists who learned a, a whole bunch of truth about vampires. They documented everything. They put it all down into a book that got stuck on the shelf in the Axis Mundi library in the found, uh, foundation house. And 100 years later, there are arcanists who pull that book off the shelf, read through it and say, nah, you know what, this is far-fetched. I don't believe this. A storyteller has options to, to handle it in different ways. And so that, that I feel like that's a recurring problem in, in RPGs. How do you justify it? And there is a certain like Sisyphean aspect to it that you bring up that people will do their research, come up with something and put it in the library. And most people will be like, oh, this is ridiculous. In the same way that you or I might look at a, a text talking about the, the early days of some new branch of science where people are doing obviously flawed experiments or obviously seeing things that aren't entirely there and won't necessarily believe it. But there will be that true believer who's like, no, 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 no. There was... There is certainly something here. 
Um, and, and, and I think that is a, a reasonable way of doing it. Yeah, well, also, it, it makes for an interesting link between uh, hermetic mages and uh, arcanists, because in the Order of Hermes, of course, there's this, this real strong belief that uh, long, long ago, the ancient masters knew everything or, or nearly everything, and that knowledge was lost, and it's our job not to discover new magical knowledge, but to uncover the old magical knowledge and become mm -hmm. as capable as they were so very long ago. And you have that in microcosm in the Arcanum. You can say, hey, 75 or 80 years ago, these arcanists knew all this stuff, but nowadays it's either hidden, like the white monks like pulled the book off the shelf and said, um, it's lost. Yeah, that's it. Or you have new members that read it and say, no, I just don't believe this. And you've got like that one guy saying, no, they were right. It's real. I just need to, you know, prove it to you guys. And so I can see a real sympathetic link between hermetic mages and arcanists because of that theme. The difference being the hermetics do think that everything that everyone previously wrote was true and they just need to study it and practice it until they can make it work. Yeah, but also there's a lot of arcanists who really believe that, uh, hey, if, if we can just get the facts together, we can go find the lost continent of Atlantis. And then you've got a lot of you know regular people who are not members of the arcanum saying, you're talking about Atlantis, you're just nuts. And at the same time, I do like when the arcanists are completely dismissing something that is pop culture where they're like, oh, you don't want to look for uh, Atlantis. You should be looking for Shangri-La. Don't be stupid. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, which I feel like is a good summary of a lot of internet arguments I, I hear between conspiracy theorists. But I, get, I guess those were, there were most of my uh, major thoughts for it. I, I did like some of the phrasing, like some of the writing was particularly pointed. Like I like when Paul DeLevy is referred to as a reservoir of manly knowledge. Um, and there are a lot of uppercase words. There's a lot of word origins. I was curious where Arcanist came from, and I was pleased to find out it's from Arca, meaning chest. So that which is uh, the pursuers of that which is locked, sealed, or hidden. Um, I did like the pot shot at the internet where one of the characters is like, yeah, should we do this stuff online? And someone says, unfortunately, giving everyone a voice often means everyone has something to say. And waiting through the daily swill that accumulates on the internet is a daunting task for any potential recruiter. And this is being said <laughs> in 1995, when the total number of people online was like, 12 <laughs> and you're like oh man this is a case where, where where you called it ahead of time i really like the reading list oddly enough um there are a number of uh, mage books that don't have a reading list there are a number of them that do and a lot of times when you're reading through the recommended reading list or bibliography or, or what have you uh you get a sense of these are just books that the author likes or or books that the author thinks everybody should read to become the sort of person that the author might like or, or something like that but when reading through the recommended reading list for halls of the arcanum i i really got this strong sense of this is all the cool stuff that i found that could work so well in an arcanum chronicle but you know I'm limited by page count. I can only put so much stuff in. But if you want to find some of the cool stuff that I didn't have time to mention, here's a list of it. I, I found a book, uh, uh, Lost Continents, by uh, I think L. Sprague de Camp, who wrote some some great fantasy fiction I've been enjoying. And I ordered the book, and it came in. And I I haven't had a chance to read it cover to cover yet, but I've been flipping through it. It's like, oh yeah, this 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 is a really interesting book talking about it gathers together all the different legends people have shared over time about Atlantis and the lost continent of Mu and some other places too. And so the reading list is uh, get, gets a star from me. Well, we've been having a bunch of uh, interesting discussions on the Discord channel for Mage the Podcast. And among those discussions, a certain member, uh, I believe his name is Terry Robinson, was saying that he's got some uh, adventure hooks to share for the Arcanum. And I, for one, would love to hear them. 
this is going to be the version of like when a kid plays dress up and being like, I'm doing what mommy does. And they put on like an oversized shirt. They're doing like their science experiment and just kind of aping the motions, kind of like this cargo cult uh, of progress. This is going to be my version of it. And my, oh, no. don't my think of it like that. <laughs> my plot options are one, a person claiming to be Benjamin Holmescroft returns to foundation house, claiming that he has found a way to cheat death. To all appearances, he appears to be who he claims to be and that he was killed notionally the first time by a member of the Society of Leopold. And it is now time for the Arcanum to no longer be a strictly academic organization. And they must now arm for war against the other factions who seek wisdom in the night. The new Benjamin Holmescroft seems to have holes in their memory, which he attributes to the difficulties of circumventing death. Can the players figure out what is amiss before the Arcanum is plunged into war? So background there. Our Benjamin Holmescroft is the founder of the Arcanum. And in various points, it is mentioned that this character seems to not be aging. And when they die, it is a closed casket event. No one has actually seen it. When this character falls ill or is killed, no one is there to witness it. And this person just kind of disappeared. And I don't think they they explicitly state Holmescroft's nature. A bunch of options are given. Was this actually a vampire? Was this actually a changeling? Was this actually a mummy? And that's one of those examples of a case where the book gives you a bunch of options of what you can run from. The Society of Leopold is a militant order that is dedicated towards destroying the things of the night as opposed to merely observing them. And they mention at various points that uh, there are people attempting to infiltrate from the Society of Leopold and that in all cases so far, they've been able to to repel them out and that the Society of Leopold is just a, a latter name for the for the Inquisition of the Middle and Dark Ages. The second one I have. A technomancer group with access to an umbral craft that they are working on discovers that an Arcana member has witnessed test flights and has videos of the craft passing into the umbra. The players have been asked as a favor to find a way to dissuade, destroy, or discredit the activities of the Arcanum UFO Lodge set up to investigate strange happenings in the sky in a particular area of your choice. Complications set in as the Arcanum Lodge seems to have access to more advanced technology than one would think mortals can muster. Is this a technocratic trap, a well-decked out group of mortals who have collected things from previous trips, or is there something else at stake that the characters must discern? And finally, the Hermeticism has been making a comeback among the High Society of London, and a new form of Neo-Crowleyanism has become a fad, which has developed a steadfast group observing it of High Society types that are snapping up rare tomes. Your characters, as Arcana members, have been eyeing these particular books that they think contain arcane secrets of use for a number of years, and this sudden popularity has caused the price to skyrocket. The characters still wish to complete their research. How will they go about gaining these items? Will it be by hook? Will it be by crook? Will they be ingratiating themselves? What manner will they choose to liberate wisdom from the hands of these social elites? And those are my three stories. Those are cool. I like those. Thank I you, Adam. A lot of mileage out of those. <laughs> Thank I've you, got uh, three also. Um, I've got, uh, let's see, number one, a lodge of arcanists enters the horizon realm of a chantry. They think they've entered a secluded mountain valley that has been hidden for centuries. The mages must now decide what to do with their uninvited guests. The arcanists found a way through defenses the mages thought impregnable and somehow got the umbred guardian's permission to pass. The arcanists must know something about the chantry that the mages themselves don't know. Plus, the arcanists are not hostile. How will the mages deal with the new arrivals? The players can be on either side of this scenario. A great way to awaken one or more arcanists to uh, mage life. 
Uh, also, what if stealthy enemies were following the Arcanists and are now loose in the Horizon Realm? Number two, the players are mages sent to infiltrate the Arcanum. The Arcanum has discovered Charlemagne's Chalice, an ancient goblet that, when filled with purified water and poured upon something, reveals its secrets. The Red Monks are planning to steal the Chalice and threaten the mages' interests. Once within the walls of Foundation House in Cambridgeshire, the characters become aware of the age-old struggle between the White and Red Monks. Can they learn the secrets of the Arcanum and Foundation House quick enough to recover the Chalice? Number three, an important tome has been stolen from the chapter house in Madrid. Nothing makes arcanists angrier than someone swiping their books. Soon after the arcanist characters are sent to investigate, they learn that a curse written in the stolen tome has been used on a journeyman that is a uh, more experienced level arcanist in a hidden colony in the mountains of Afghanistan. Uh, oh, I should stop and say here that a colony is a incipient chapter house, a chapter house that is just um, starting out and has not been uh, fully recognized yet, often um, done in a stealthy manner. Uh, the blessings and curses written in the tome were thought to be allegories, but now seem to be real. The players are sent to recover the tome and discover who's attacking the lodge operating in Afghanistan. The players can't tell if the Arcanum leadership is more interested in protecting their members or learning the truth behind the stolen tome. So that's three from Terry, three from me. Well, I think yeah. that about uh, covers everything that I wanted to discuss today. Uh, how are you doing, Terry? I'm doing fine. What's what's up next on our reading docket? Next, we have the final volume, at least by my ordering, for the first edition, and that is Destiny's Price, a book about the big city, where I assume uh, the majors will do what I do in a big city, take in the size, visit some friends, uh, see what's going on in uh, current events. But uh, after that, we will be done with first edition and we will head into second edition, starting with the core book. I am super jazzed. Second edition core book was the first one I got. I have that tome. I destroyed my original one in the process of digitizing it. But luckily, due to the glory of print on demand, I now have a, a paperback copy, which is something I didn't think could ever exist. So if you would like to join the Maids the Ascension book club, which is something I just kind of invented, read those things and drop us a line on our Discord server. Uh, there's a link to it at our webpage. There is no good short URL I can tell you about yet until I figure out how to do that. And then I will do so. The other one that's going to appear in sequence is The Fragile Path, The Testament of the First Cabal. Adam and I had a conversation about, do we want to include this? And for The Fragile Path and The Mage Tarot, we are going to do special episodes sometime in September, October, talking with other folks that have special insight into those. And those will appear in your podcast feed, possibly as Tomes of Magic, possibly not. But we will be covering those as well. I'm super jazzed when you and I get to the revised age and we get to talk about the Mage the Ascension tattoos and the special Mage the Ascension Zippo lighter. Those should be amazing episodes. I can't wait myself uh, if I ever figure out how to do an episode on those, but <laughs> that should be fun. <laughs> well, until next time, feel free to join us uh, on our Mage the Podcast Discord. There's a lot of discussions there. Some of them are even halfway decent. Uh, we also oh. have... <laughs> uh, no, seriously, it is a lot of fun. We've got a lot of people who've joined us there. And we're having a lot of fun conversations. I, I enjoy logging on every day and catching up with uh, what's being said. We have a Mage... Uh, the podcast website, which uh, oddly enough is called madethepodcast.com. You can listen to episodes there and, and see what else it is uh, we'd like to tell you about. Uh, you can also contact us, madethepodcast at gmail.com. You can let us know what uh, questions, comments, or feedback you have for us. You can also su subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. 
And also this episode of Made the Podcast was executively produced by Richard Bat Brewster and Ira Grace, also new executive producer, Michael Parker. If you'd like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show notes at magethepodcast.com. Well, that's it for me. And so until next time, truth until paradox, baby. The shadows beckon. Let us enter and learn. Bye.